I'm glad you're here. Let me just warn you, this is two full page of notes. Normally I only have one page. You guys are just kidding. It's a two-part message. I just printed it all out. <laughs> so those of you who are getting really nervous about your lunch plans, you're safe. Um, as you know, I, I like to do series, and there's two reasons I like to do that, is I think linear. I just do, I think, long picture. And so I have a little chart, and I can go all the way back actually to about 2009, I can go back and see every topic I preached on. So before I was ever here, back to 2009, because that's how old my computer is, and I can see uh, what I preached on like for the month and even sometimes specifically for the week. And I do that because I don't want to, I tell you the same stories anyway. I pretty much tell you the same thing every week. Love one another, be gracious, be a good neighbor. That's all what I'm saying today. But I want to do it in different angles. Um, but sometimes there's what I call these, just these gap weeks. It's a series ends, and I'm not ready to start the new series. I'll tell you now, our new series starting in September, starting the second week of September, is going to be on missions, on both being a missional church and being a world-minded, having a global mission vision. So that's what we're going to be on in September. What is our local mission? What is our global mission? And how do we fulfill those? But I had these weeks in between, and so... This was actually from four years ago. I read this article, 10 Things Every New Christian Should Know. And I was just flipping through. It was, I think it was in Leadership Today, which is a Christian publication. I was just flipping through, and it caught my attention. And I th- I, at the time, I actually tore out the article and kept it for a long time. And then, of course, I misplaced it. So then, like three, four weeks ago, I was trying to figure out, what do I say? I have these gap weeks. What am I going to say? And I was like, we really don't have that many new Christians. But I Googled the article in hopes of finding it, and I found it. I was like, you know, the problem is we believe these things when we're new Christians, but then once we're seasoned people, we just move on with life. And this was not easy for me to... This was actually written... I don't know. It was was written a while back. And um, just to try to say... Is this really where we're at? But as I was praying over the last two weeks while I was away, or I was away, I guess, nine days, but while I was praying during that time, I'm on vacation, I'm in the water, I'm having fun, I'm working on our building. We have a little cabin, it's a one-room cabin, but it's 72 years old, 71 years old, and falling apart, and you're trying to hold something together that's that old. Some of you that are 71 go, I understand, you're falling apart yourselves. Well, now imagine my building. The foundation's crumbling. We had to dig a new well. Um, and I was just having these moments where none of this should be going on. And I was like, this is my vacation. And yet, I was enjoying it. And I was thinking about just life. And I was like, you know, God, I want to just enjoy my relationship with you. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship. And you've been in it a long time. And you're not even thinking about divorce. You're not even thinking about, but you're like, you know what? Our relationship is tired. My relationship with my spouse, my relationship, I'm just frustrated with my parents. I'll just be honest with you. My parents sometimes listen, but I'll be honest anyway. My parents are aging. And I get so frustrated with them. And I'm like, you didn't do this 20 years ago. And they're like, what? Never mind. (laughs) But sometimes relationships get dry. Sometimes just the joy of life is not there. And so I was like, I was having a great time on my vacation. I was like, God, I just want this feeling, this relaxed, calm feeling all the time. And God reminded me, that's not the way life works. But then I was like, in my relationship with you, God, I just want it to be fun and fresh. And so 
that's when it kind of hit me like, you know what? What is it that you needed when you were first a Christian to know? So those of you who have been Christians more than probably three or four years, you know all of this? Just jot a few notes down because maybe it'll hit you at some point. But for the rest of us, wherever we're at in life, maybe it's time for a refresher course. Maybe it's time to learn again. When my mom used to teach kindergarten, she said, kindergarten was great to teach, but every Monday, it was like they'd never been in class before, and every time you came back after a holiday, forget it. They didn't even know how to line up anymore. It's just what happens. You know what? That's We're the same way. We know it all, but then we forget because it's been a while. So today, I'm going to do five out of ten things that every Christian should know. Um, Number one, God loves you more than you could possibly love him. More than you can comprehend, and it's not a matter of whether or not you deserve it. 1 John 4, 16 through 19 tells us this. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are to be like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because we're great people. We don't love because of the experiences and life choices I've made, because of what I've done, because of anything else. We love because we have experienced genuine love from the Father. And until we experience that genuine love from the Father, it's hard for us to really fully comprehend what it means to be loved. And so some of us go through life feeling unloved, unlovable, unloveworthy, because we've never really connected and understood. God loves you for who you are. Not for what you can give, not for what you can attain, not for what you're going to become. He loves you for who you are. He looks at you through eyes of love, and it was such a deep love that he wanted to be reconciled to you. And too oftentimes, we think that that reconciliation has something to do with what I do. Instead of understanding, it's entirely who he is. And so when we think of it as, what do I do? Then I'm constantly driven to do works. Now people will say, well, if we're not so works, then why are you always talking about service opportunities? Because we recognize, we exercise, and we show the world our love through what we do. We do not show God how much we love him through what we do. We do not achieve God's love through what we do. We do so that people around us can experience who God is. It's not about salvation It's not about works. It's not about anything other than I want my neighbors on my left and my right to understand who God is. So I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. Stop trying to earn his love. You cannot. Stop believing you deserve his love. You do not deserve his love because you have lived the perfect Christian life. The danger in believing I deserve his love is I also then get to reward myself by choosing to sin when I want to occasionally because I'm a really good person. And that's the danger. I can do this even though I know I shouldn't. Even though we're not talking about the cheat day on your diet. We're talking about choosing to sin because I've deserved God's love because I've been good for this many years. My parents had a friend who, um, the person had kids about my age. They were like two years, they had three kids, but they were like two years, four years, and five years younger than me. So we used to hang out and play and do stuff together. And um, they were, this guy was very involved and active in the church. He was married. And 
the last of his kids, it was about a year after they graduated high school, my parents told me that this family left the church, which shocked me because they'd been there for 25, 30 years. I said, really? What? He said, the wife was still coming, and the husband decided one day he came home from work and said, I've done my job as a husband and a father. I've been a great husband, a great father, and I'm going to go do what I want. And he literally that day packed up two suitcases, put them in the trunk of his car, and drove off. And she didn't hear from him. It was like eight or nine months before she even heard from him again. He'd done his job. He deserved it. Stop living that way. When you live that way, you believe, hey, I get to do what I want now because I was good for a while. You don't deserve God's love. He gives it to you because he loves you, not because you deserve it. Learn to accept his love, and it will cause you to live differently because when we've encountered the real truth of who God is, we can't be the same. I'm not saying everybody who does that chooses to follow God. I'm saying we can't live the same. I have a friend whose grandfather recently died. His grandfather was 101 years old. If I said his grandfather's name, those of you locally would actually know the name. He's a pastor in North Seattle, but his grandfather never accepted Christ. And he said he would go and he would talk and he would really, and I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't be. He said, I feel worse for those who have never heard, never had the chance. He heard, he chose to reject. And I said, but that's all attorney. He goes, he made his choice. And that's hard for us. We want to believe that because we serve a loving and just God, everything turns out right in the end. But it doesn't. People still have free will. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love someone because things didn't work out the way we want them to. Do you understand? It's a subtle difference, but people still have free will. Number two, second thing every Christian needs to know is our motivation as followers of Christ is about knowing him more. John Chapter 8, starting at verse 12, this is what it tells us. Then Jesus spoke to them, to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The actual original there says, it, it, it really says more, it cannot be true. They, they can't comprehend that it's true. Not it can't. Not it isn't true. There's a subtle difference. So I don't like this translation as much on this verse, but normally I do. But it cannot be true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I am, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do not judge, my judgment is true. For if I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. The whole point of this experiment here on earth, the reason he created creation, was he wanted to create a being who, of their own free will, chose to have a relationship with him. It tells us that there are angels who... They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they fall on their face. And then they stand up and as soon as they see the glory, they fall down and do it again. Man can see the glory and let it unaf- live unaffected. Man can see God working in them and chalk it up to, wow, weird coincidence. This person was healed. Well, medical science doesn't know everything. This person wasn't healed. God, where are you? Same people. 
our motivation as followers of Christ is about knowing him more, learning, reading, serving, worshiping, giving, praying. All of those acts, all of those spiritual disciplines are about us discovering more of who God is. I know there's uh, some churches, and this isn't a criticism, it's just something I've observed, that when the offering comes, they'll say, if you're not a part of our family, if you're not a part of our congregation, don't feel compelled to give. Here's my take on it. Why would I tell someone not to do one of the practices that's specifically in Scripture, which is give offerings and gifts? I don't need your money. I want you to act in worship by doing that. Says, giving is an act of worship. Why would I gyp somebody and say, no, you can't because you don't belong to our club. It's the same thing with communion. Communion's an act of worship. You don't have to be a member. You come and you take. Because we're all unworthy. So stop saying, well, are they really doing it in an unworthy manner? No, and neither are you. Because I can find your sin. Give me 15 minutes and let me look through your emails. The truth is, it's an act of worship. And all of worship is about knowing more of Christ. Understanding who he is is critical to our growth. So if I don't know the truth of who Jesus is, I can't possibly grow into who he created me to be. Our passion should be to be more like him every day in every area of our life. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, and I like to remind them, part of it was. You don't end up with a city as great as Rome unless somebody's working on it every day. I um, was driving through my neighborhood recently, and I drove by a vacant lot, and I swear two weeks later, I drove by a completed house that was for sale, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> when did they put that there? Somebody did part of it every day. They didn't just suddenly fly in a house and set it there. I may not be paying attention, which isn't beyond the realm of possibility. I'm kind of a distracted driver, and I'm playing with my radio much of the time. But part of it was done. You know what? The same thing. I can look at people and go, wow, I didn't see their growth. And then suddenly, five years later, I go, man, they've really become who God created them to be. They're really taking steps forward on that journey. What I desire for each of us is not to be a false maturity, but to be a genuine, real growing Christian. And if we're going to do that, if we're really going to grow into who Christ created us to be and to become who he wants us to be, then I need to be taking the spiritual disciplines and the steps forward to becoming more like him. You are n- point number three is, you are not only saved by grace, but learning to experience and share grace helps us grow into who God created us to be. Right off of that last one. Isn't that neat how that ties in? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Again, not through works. Not because you deserve it, not because you were chosen and somebody else wasn't through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were created for what? To do God's works, to do good works, to serve others. Again, it's not about doing, it's about showing those on our left and our right who I am in Christ, because from the very beginning, that's why he created me. God desires for us to experience his grace, but then to pass it along to others. One year, as a cabin leader, I was at a camp and they served the table. You sat with your cabin, everybody at one table, and the food would be placed on the table, and it was all boys. And the first day, they just started grabbing food. It was unbelievable. Just imagine 
nine high school guys and how fast they can grab food. And just, it was just flying. And so I said, stop. This is not how you eat. We are not barbarians. And the rest of the week, I would make every person pass everything all the way around the table before we ate. And then at each meal, I would make them say, at dinner, I would make them say one thing that they had experienced that day that was impacting or fun or funny. And we would go around dinner. Lunch would be, tell me one thing in your life, and I'd come up with one thing in your life that you want to be or one thing in your life you hope to do. And at breakfast, it would be one thing I'm thankful to God for today. And we would pass it all. And, and one of the boys said, the other tables aren't doing it. And I was like, yeah, but we don't have to be like them. We get to be better. That's what grace is. I've experienced something. Now I'm going to pass it around. Now I'm going to share it. And I know that's a silly little example. But if I take the grace that I have and simply use it to judge the world and go, the world's going to hell because they don't do this and this and this, and they don't align with my political party, so I know they're going to hell then I'm not really experiencing grace or showing grace. But showing and experiencing grace is, here's what I've experienced. Now let's walk through this together. Let's live this. Let's, let's engage with one another. Let's not find what separates us and makes us different. Let's find the things that can bring us together. Again, I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes. I'm not talking about compromising our core values and beliefs. I'm not talking about compromising my stand for Jesus. But what I am saying is, let's stop finding what makes us different. Let's start finding those commonalities because that's how grace can be seen and experienced. Forgiveness holds its power in his grace. And my ability to forgive and my ability to receive forgiveness is because of his grace. Number four, love your neighbors. My go-to, the thing I like to talk about probably as much as anything. Luke 10, 25 through 37 is the story of the Good Samaritan. I'd encourage you to write it down and read it, but it ends with this. Which of these, this is verse 36, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Literally, the people around you need to be shown who he is. Literally, my neighbors need to be loved even when they're difficult to love? I've actually had a conversation with somebody in here about difficult to love neighbors. I've had neighbors that are tough to love. The hard part is he doesn't put enough caveats. He doesn't say, if they're good people, they just don't know. He says, love your neighbor. If they reciprocate that love, when you love them, they love you back. Nope, it says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Talks about who our neighbor is, but it doesn't talk about you know, how I have to do this. What I say all the time is, it's my job to convince my neighbor that they're loved by me, not their job to say, oh, you love me so much. I have to show them and tell them and live that out. And finally, along with that, my neighbors are not a goal. I've got to win them to Christ. Do I want to? Absolutely. But you know what my neighbors are? The people that I live around, that I interact with, and it's my job to love them whether they ever accept Jesus or not. And when I start looking them as a goal to get them in my church or to get them saved or to get them anything, then I stop looking them as people and start looking them as a target. So I've seen in the church two extremes. 
Now maybe this is just my own, but either we don't even know who our neighbors are, we're not even engaged in our community, we're not even involved with them, or they're a target. I got to get them in. And then once I do, I'm like, check them off, don't have to talk to them anymore, I got to get the next one in. Now I am a person who is passionate about evangelism. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that next week. I'm going to share a statistic with you this week that I'm also going to share next week. But it is this. 86% of pastors will not invite one person to their own church in a year's time. That's pastors. That's the ones who are paid to do it. 86% will not invite a single person in a year to their church. Doesn't mean they're not doing some other form of evangelism. But I won't let that be me. Tracy says I pounce on people. I say, no, I just love people and I want, to hear, I want to know them and meet them and hear their story. Sorry if you've been pounced on by me. It's our difference in making friends. She plays the long game and has lifelong friends. I play the, let's go to lunch! <laughs> the first time I meet them. But people are not a goal. I want to know people because I want to hear their story. I want to engage with them. I want to learn about their life. Do I want people to know Jesus? Absolutely. But he doesn't say, I'm doing it right if they say this prayer and follow me. What he says is, I'm doing it right if I love them. That's when I'm doing it correctly. I love them. And that's so hard because that means i got to get out of myself. And I'm so not self-aware most of the time that all I'm thinking about is Jeff. I'm not really aware of where they're at or what's going on in i got to stop and breathe and meet them and connect and find out who they are and what they're passionate about and then go from there. The final of the five out of ten, remember, next week is the rest of the ten. You don't want to miss it, but focus on Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. When I say focus on Jesus, people suddenly think of all the different things in theology and all the theological debates, and are we going to debate a literal six-day creation or not, because I'm only going to this church if you'll talk about this, or I'm only going to church if you'll talk about end times. I've had people tell me that. I'm only going to come. Don't do that. That's not fair to anybody. That's like people, if you own a plumbing business, I'm only going to come if you'll come at two in the morning, whether I have a contract with you or not, I want you there then. That's not fair. Now, do I occasionally talk about end times? Yes. Do I occasionally talk about creation? Yes. But it's always in the guise of who is God, how is God good, and how do we see that goodness lived out in our life? I'm not saying that we can't have a Bible study that really focuses on the book of Revelation. That can be fun and exciting. But if my whole life is about what's going to happen next, then I'm missing the purpose of this life, which is to live and love and know God fully and completely, where I'm at right now, every day. I'm not called to just warn people they're going to hell. I'm called to love people on my left and my right, and when I have opportunity, introduce them to who Jesus is. Focus on Jesus, life, death, resurrection. It's not that the other things don't matter, but don't get sidetracked. It's like I say, our church really has four key things. Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Healer, Jesus is Baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the soon-coming King, or Jesus is coming back, however you want to word it. Those are the four things. Everything else, non-essentials to me. Do I want people to live full lives, full of the Spirit? Yes. But I want them to know Jesus and who He is. 
it becomes easy to be distracted by theology, by doctrine, by theories, and by ideas. Jesus is returning, but our focus must be on this life because sooner or later, everybody's going to meet him. Either he's going to return or you're going to die. Either way, my focus is on this life because I need to live this to the fullest so that I make an impact on the world around me while I'm here. Christianity is not a list of rules and requirements. That's why I always hesitate to do anything with a list in it. Christianity is not a list of rules and requirements. But having an understanding of what Christianity is, of, what, of who Jesus is, will lead us in our growth. And our growth is what's going to impact those around us. People notice when you've changed. See somebody you haven't seen for a few months after you've lost 30 pounds, the first thing is, wow, you lost a lot of weight. They see the change. The day-to-day, people may not see it, but over the long term, people will see the change. I have these apple trees. My last illustration, then I'll dismiss you. I have these apple trees in the yard at my cabin. I planted them in 2003. My brother-in-law got deployed and... uh, he would always, it'd be him and myself and my dad when we'd go to our cabin, and my dad was getting his 15 or 20-year pen, I can't remember, for Ducks Unlimited. And my brother-in-law would always go with him, but because he was deployed, I flew back to go with my dad to this little ceremony where they were going to honor him for rescuing ducks or whatever it is he does with them. Um, and uh, we were there, and I said, let's plant a tree, just in honor of my brother-in-law. Just remember and so we planted two apple trees and one of them was doing terrible and the other one was doing great I mean, one of them was flourishing and full of fruit then three years ago this stupid bear climbed my tree and snapped it in half it just wasn't quite strong enough to support the weight of a bear um there are claw marks all up so now half the tree is dead and half the tree is living but you walk over and you look at the one tree and you look at the other and you don't notice how little one growth has. If I just walk to the smaller tree, the one that actually is still full of apples and thriving, you walk over and it's, it's about three, four inches around. I can, now I can't quite get my fingers around it. The other one, after 15 years, it's about 10 or 12 inches in circumference. One of them was thriving, but now it's dead. The other one has been a slow growth, but I looked and I was like, oh, I counted apples. We have about six dozen apples on that tree. The one that I was like, oh, let's just toss it out. Now, I've trimmed back the one, and I hope that in spite of a bear mauling, it will recover. (laughs) But it probably won't. It'll probably in three or four or five years be completely dead, and then I'll cut it down. But you sometimes don't see the growth because you're trying to compare it to something else. I kept comparing it to this big tree and going, that one's not doing anything. They were planted the same day. They both get the same amount of water. They're 50 feet apart. How can this one be so bad and this one be so good? And then suddenly, my eyes are drawn back to the other one and go, oh, it's doing something. It's growing. It's thriving. Stop comparing and let's start looking for the growth. Because when I was comparing, the one tree was worthless. I didn't even like it. I get angry with it. I know, it's irrational. But the other one, 
other one was good. And then suddenly, after an incident in its life, <laughs> it's just nothing. We do the same thing in our own life. I'm no good because I'm not growing. I'm not thriving. You know what? Let's grow where we're planted. Let's keep moving forward. Let's stop comparing ourselves to something else. But now I look and I go, oh, it was this tall when I planted it. It's now taller than I, I can't even reach the top apples. There was growth there all along, but I couldn't see it because I was too busy comparing. Don't do that to yourselves. It's not fair to you. Let's just be people who grow. Maybe not at the same rate. Maybe not at the same whatever. But let's be people who grow. God doesn't necessarily desire the path of least resistance, but God desires the route of greatest transformation in our life. Let's find that route that's going to transform us into who he created us to be. Father God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for everyone in this congregation. I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you, Father God, that there's things that even after we've been Christians for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, there's still things that we can learn when we'll go back and look. Help these to be real in our life, God. Make them real in our congregation. Let us be a people who are transformed and changed to be more like you. In your name, amen. Two things I want to say upon your departure today. Number one, I hope that you will join us for ice cream tonight, 5 p.m. at the Des Moines campus. Those of you who are lactose intolerant, you can still come because it is an ice cream social, and we still have the social part. So those of you who go, oh, I can't, or because of dietary reasons or whatever, we're also having chocolate cake. So I don't know if there's any dairy in it or not, but come on out and have a piece of chocolate cake. The reason we do it is quite simply, I want to have our church know one another because you guys matter to me and you matter to each other. And I want you to learn to live in community. Number two, the Johnsons are back in town. We haven't gotten to be blessed with them in church since April. So if you see some of them, say hello. They're here because Isaac and I were best friends. Some of you probably know that. And it's his 16th birthday today. So if you see Isaac, as much as he doesn't want it, literally, they're here because Isaac wanted to come over for his birthday. So when you see Isaac, thank them for taking the time to come over this weekend and wish him a happy birthday, right? Isaac waved everybody so they remember who you are. You've gotten so tall. And I noticed Isaac's brother Gabe wants everyone to say something to him too. So anyway, thanks for being here today. I'm glad you're here. We'll see you all next week. Have a blessed week.